As we said last week, we're kicking off this, this new year uh, in 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter with me. We're going to be picking up at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, near the end of the New Testament, right before Jude and Revelation. Uh, so 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. And the big idea that we're unpacking together this morning is sanctification, and specifically that Jesus sanctifies us. Jesus sanctifies us. Now, sanctification may be a, a churchy word that not everybody knows. If you've been in church your entire life or most of your life, you've heard the word. Sanctification literally means to grow to be more like Jesus, to grow to be. It's a, it's a fancy word that means to grow. So uh, Jesus sanctifies us. He grows us to become more like him. I want to start out by reading the rest of chapter 1 together. So let's read chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. It says, therefore. Now, every time, if you've been in church, you've heard a pastor make a joke saying, you need to see what the therefore is there for. And so last week, we talked about the living hope that we have in Jesus, salvation, that we are saved from sin and we are saved to eternal life with him. So that's the therefore. Since we've been saved, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Don't be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you are also to be holy in all of your conduct, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially, according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers, talking about this side of eternity. For you know you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. When we do communion, we remember that, the priceless, precious blood of Christ that set us free, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in the last time for you. People always ask, are we in the last days? And I say, yeah, yeah, we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. Through him, talking about Jesus, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have been pure, since you have purified yourselves by obedience to the truth so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart with love and love one another constantly because you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable. For the living and enduring word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and the glory like a flower of the, of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God endures forever. Peter quotes Isaiah 40, verse 8 right there. And the word is the gospel, the good news that was proclaimed to you. Here's what we see. Christ sanctifies us, and that sanctification is, should lead to holy conduct. That's our first point this morning. Sanctification leads to holy conduct. Sanctification leads to holy living. What we'll see in the first part of the sermon is 
Is sanctification growing to be more like Jesus is individualized for us as men and women who are made in the image of God? And then what we'll see is how it applies to the church. And Peter already takes up that call when he talks about loving one another in this passage. So when you look at this passage and you see that our minds should be ready for action, uh, God used a similar phrase in the Old Testament uh, in the book of Job, setting your minds ready for action is like girding up your loins. And maybe you've heard that phrase before. What that means is an ancient Hebrew phrase that means they, they wore long robes back then. And if they need to get someplace pretty quick, they had to tuck in their robe. Ladies, have you ever been in a dress and you need to get somewhere quick or you're trying to get out of the door and you, you, you hike your dress up and you get, you, you get to where you need to be? It's the same type of thing. Uh, men wore long robes, and so they had to tuck in their robes with a belt. How many guys, you know, we thank God that our belt's still holding, right? You know, amen, right? And so uh, I got a new belt uh, for Christmas, so I was excited about that. It actually fits. Uh, no, I'm joking. But uh, so girding up your loins means being ready for action, setting your minds on being what, what Peter says here, sober-minded. Uh, we don't think about this gift or this discipline too often uh, as God's people. But do you know that we are, we're supposed to be sober-minded and self-controlled? It means not just that we watch what we eat or watch what we drink, because what we eat and what we drink aren't bad. It depends upon how much we consume, right? That's why the Bible says, like, Jesus serves wine in communion, but it says don't become a drunkard. Too much wine leads to drunkenness. Same thing with everything. Too much of something that becomes, when a good thing becomes a God thing, meaning that you consume it over, over and above the consuming of God's word, then it becomes idolatry. And so what, what Peter is saying here is be sober-minded, be ready for action. I love what Thomas Schreiner, he's actually a professor at the Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He said, he says this, there's a way that li of living that becomes so dull to the reality of God that is an anesthetized by the attractions of the world. People are lulled into such drowsiness or drunkenness that they lose the sight of Christ's future revelation of himself and only concentrate right now on their earthly desires. You remember Peter started out this section saying, therefore, and the therefore was pointing back to the living hope, the future that we have in Christ and upon his second advent, his return for you and me. We know like Hebrews 13, 14 says, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We, we live right now in light of wall of eternity. It doesn't mean that we don't live right now. And we, we just, you know, we're like, God, get me out of this place. It means that we have a purpose right now. And the purpose is to live out the redemption that God will ultimately fulfill in the coming of Christ. But what Thomas Schreiner says here is that there's a living that people have in our world that just becomes dull. They think the sex, the, the news, the politics, the, the food, the drink, all these things bring happiness. And ultimately, they don't. Think about one of the funniest men, probably the of the last half century, uh, Robin Williams. Y'all remember Robin Williams? Like, like a funny man, right? You think he has the world, and, and, but he took his own life. How, how many times do we see people who we think are on top of the world, but they're not? 
because we know that the that that this world doesn't offer us the hope that we're looking for. And I would encourage you, if you're here today, if you know of anybody that has mental health issues or any sort of like thoughts like that have led to many of these actors and 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 politicians and famous people, because not just actors, uh, you know, there have been guys that ran for president that have taken their own lives. And so here's the thing. If you know someone who is struggling or you're here struggling today, this is what Peter's pointing towards, not only the hope of Christ, but the hope of Christ found in the people of Christ. And we're going to get to that here in just a moment. And what, what he says in the next verse, 14, he, he uses this phrase, obedient children. We call our church family church because we believe that we're a family of God's people. That God has, has united us to love him and love others. We do it passionately and personally. We apply what God's truth to the way that we live. Since God's word lives forever, God's word lives through us as we show his love to each and every person we encounter. And we see ourselves as united under the Father. And we are his children. And so Peter writes, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. Now he's... Uh, He's, all of us have been ignorant. Maybe we still live out some ignorance every now and then. Every wife says amen, right? Talking about your husband, not you, you know. If it goes the other way, you're in trouble, you know. But like, we, we all live in that ignorance. Well, he's writing here to a primarily Gentile audience, a non-Jewish audience. He's saying now in the first part of this chapter, he talks about how they're part of God's family now. And he's saying now you've walked in this former way of pagan idolatry. Now is your time to cast aside all of these things because in verse 15, he reminds them that God has called them to this. Now, this calling is not just an invitation. It's a purpose. We are called and, and God is the one who calls us. He's the one in, in charge of our salvation and we are called for a purpose. We're called to be holy. He quotes here several Old Testament passages, but we see in Leviticus 19, Chapter 1 and or 19, verses 1 and 2, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Speak to the entire Israel community and tell them, Be holy because I am holy. Now, what does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be holy? Being holy is not only patterning our lives, uh, 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 patterning our lives in light of who God is and, and striving for perfection that we'll never achieve on this side of eternity, but holiness also means being set apart. If you read the book of Leviticus, if you read the Old Testament, you see Israel went to great lengths to make sure that they were clean, that they were set apart to be in the presence of God. But now through Jesus, all these things have been wiped clean. Now when God doesn't, God doesn't look at us and see our unholiness, God looks at us and sees us as his. And since we are his, holy conduct will never lead to salvation. But since we are saved, we will long for to be holy. Works don't get us to Jesus. But since we are saved, we work to be more like Jesus. And it says that the Father is the one who judges impartially. And he's redeemed us from our former empty way of life. You ever read the book of Ecclesiastes and and Solomon writes, you know, this is emptiness. This is vanity. This is all of life apart from doing what God has called us to do is empty. 
but we, we have been redeemed from this emptiness, this idolatry by the blood of Jesus. Peter personalizes this call for you and me to follow Jesus in light of all that he's done for us. And how do we do this? We see in this passage in verses 22 and 23, he challenges them to do this in love, love for God and love for one another. He uses two words here for these two words for love. He uses filio and agape. And what he means there is that our brotherly love should mirror God's love. Filio means brotherly love, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Agape means godly love, only that's possible by God to his creation. And so we mirror that love for one another. What did Jesus say to his disciples in John 13, verse 34 through 35? He says, love one another, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And by this, people will know that you are my disciples, that you're a member of the family of God by what? By your love for one another. All points back to the great commandment, love God and love people. Our love for God should lead us to love other people. Now, it doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect in our love for other people. It means that we're going to fail and we're going to falter, but it does mean that we forgive and that we endure and we live in light of God's ever, never-ending word. And then we see Peter, Peter really summarizes it here, quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. And he talks about the grass withering and the flower fading, but the word of God remaining forever. Now, this prophecy in the Old Testament given by Isaiah was given to Israel while they were in bondage in Babylon. And he's reminding them while they're in a pagan land under a pagan ruler, uh, apart from the land that was promised to them, he reminds them of the promises that God has given them. And he's saying the grass withers and the flower fades. Different kings will rise and fall. Seasons will come. Seasons will go. But God's word and his promises remain true and remain forever. That's the firm foundation that we live on, church. Christ is our firm foundation. He's the solid rock on which we stand. God's word is firm and it's forever. Now let's read. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and get to our second and our last point today. But there's a lot here in this last section. It says, therefore, there's another therefore, right? You got to love it when you're reading the New Testament. Therefore, you know, uh, all of this builds upon one another. It's why we shouldn't just read by the Bible isolated, why we should try to go through it uh, verse by verse through an entire book as much as we can, because it all builds upon one another. Since God's word is forever, Peter writes, that's what the therefore is. God's word is forever. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, evil, and slander. And like newborn infants, desire pure, the pure milk of the word so that you may grow into your salvation. If you have tasted that the Lord is good and, and come to him, a living stone rejected by the people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built into a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, see, I lay a stone in Zion, 
talking about God's resting place, his, his temple. A stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone. A cornerstone is the capstone of a, uh, is the corner of a building that holds up the rest of the foundation. The one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Verse seven. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over, a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word and they were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're a people and you've received mercy, uh, but you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles in this world to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your souls. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, when your own people slander you, they that when they slander you, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day that he visits. Sanctification leads to holy conduct or holy action, but now we see it, it now we see the personalization of sanctification coming into the people of God. And so sanctification leads to a holy people. It doesn't just lead to a holy conduct. Sanctification leads to a holy people. It means that as God's church, we are set apart for his purposes. It means that the world around us may laugh at us, they may, they, may, they may scoff, but they see something in us that's different. I don't know if y'all know this, but we regularly have people that we interact with, even in our own church, who don't believe in Jesus, but they're drawn to something. They're drawn to something. They're drawn to something. They can't even articulate what that thing is. But what it is, is it's the love of Jesus that's present in this place amongst the people who are different, amongst the people who are sinners, amongst the people who are united by only one solid rock on which we stand. We see that Peter tells them to rid themselves, since their since they're, they're, they're beloved children rid themselves of these things. And what are they supposed to rid themselves of? He lists five different things. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 2. Well, no, verse 1. He says, therefore, rid yourselves of what? Malice. What is malice? Malice is a desire to inflict harm upon someone. Anybody ever had malice? Have you ever felt like you wanted to inflict harm on someone? I'm glad people are honest because we all have struggled with malice, right? Deceit. Deceit's the other thing we should avoid. What is deceit? Deceit means that you're being deceitful. It means that you're being disingenuous. It means it's a form of lying in that you're deliberately dishonest, putting your own personal good above someone else. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy comes from a word meaning actor. A hypocrite is someone who says that they're something, but they, they're not. A hypocrite doesn't mean that you're always perfect because all of us are hypocrites, but a true hypocrite is someone who says that they're a Christian and they act like Satan. Y'all know those people, right? And, uh, and so uh, we're also to put aside envy. 
Envy means that you want something that's not yours. Yet again, it means that you elevate yourself over someone else. And then we get to slander. Slander. What does slander mean? Slander means that you say words that deliberately tell, tear other people down for your own good. What does the Bible say about the tongue? It's, it's, it, it, here's the reason why I believe Peter addresses the way we're treating each other and why he falls into the very last application of that saying slander because he's going to get to the point where he's telling them that you weren't built to tear other people down. You were built to build other people up to proclaim the excellencies of he who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Slander tears people down. Slander it forms it often in the form of gossip. What do we see? Matthew chapter 12, chapter 12, verse 34. Jesus said, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Y'all know that. If you know someone who's unhappy, they speak their unhappiness all the stinking time. And they often do it tearing you down. That's just the, it's, it's a sad world and a sad state. We have to watch our own tongues. We have to think, hey, what am I, am I always complaining? Am I always, uh, what am I always talking about? Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Like, what do I talk about? If I don't talk about Jesus, I have to ask, is Jesus in my heart? Because you will talk about what's in your heart. James writes in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 26, that if anyone is religious and doesn't control his tongue, his religion is useless and it's in vain. It's right before the, word, the verse, you know, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to look after orphans and widows, right? And they're and their oppression, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Well, if you don't try to control your tongue, and you try to not slander and bring malice and envy and all these other things, to be a holy people, we have to be set apart in the way that we talk and we speak. James says in chapter 3, how small a fire can set a forest ablaze, right? And he's talking about a tongue. Y'all know that? How many times, y'all ever played the telephone game? When you say one little thing and it like the next person thing and next thing, that's what gossip does. Because gossip, by the time it gets to somebody, it's ultimately not the truth. It's a fantasized, slanderous version of the truth that builds you up and tears someone else down. But let no corrupting talk, no foul language come out of your mouth. Sometimes we think when Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, let no foul language or corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only what is useful for building others up. We, uh, Ephesians 4.29, like we think that about being cursing. Foul language is anything that tears down God's creation. Foul language is deceitfulness. It's slanderous. So what do we do instead? Verse 2, as newborn infants, instead of doing these things, what do we do? We desire the pure milk of his word. Now, I don't know if you like milk or not, like, but when you were a baby, you longed for it. When you were an infant, you longed for it. It's, it's your sustenance. It's how you keep going. 
And what God is saying here through his word is that as a baby longs for milk, we should long for the word of God. We should long for applying the word of God in our lives. In verse 3, Peter qualifies, in fact, that we should ask ourselves if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Because anyone that tastes that the Lord is good won't feast on anything else. You ever had good steak and bad steak? You don't want that bad steak, right? You ever had, let me personalize this even more. You ever had good king cake? Y'all know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Karen Kenner, Party Palace. You ever been to like Randazzo's, you know, what's Kaluta's, the, what's the Dong Fong, you know, all these. You had good king cake and then you, then you get it from Walmart. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. If you've had something that's good, you know when it's bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Thank God for Rouse's because you can kind of, it's not quite as good as the other one, but you can actually get it sometimes and not have to kill other people to get it. You know what I mean? Like, and so if you've tasted of God's goodness, then you don't want, you would never want to feast on anything else. If you've tasted of God's goodness in the way that he tells us to view other people, not as objects, but his. It affects everything. It affects our slander. It affects our sexual desires. It affects everything. It affects the way we treat people. Men, every time you look at porn, you're hurting someone else's daughter. You ever thought about that? That's someone else's daughter that you're taking of. Women, when you desire to be that other person and you're envying, realize that you are are ripping your, your own identity apart, devaluing a father who loves you. Most of you had good fathers who love you and adore you. And even if you don't, you have a heavenly father who does. You're feasting on the ideas of this world rather than on who he is. Thomas Schreiner again says, he says, believers should long for the Lord if indeed they have tasted and experienced his kindness. Longing to grow spiritually comes from the taste of the beauty of the Lord and experience of his kindness and goodness. Those who pursue God ardently have tasted his sweetness and can't taste anything else. Christian growth for Peter is not a mere call to duty. It's the desire that grows from an experience of the Lord's kindness, an experience that leaves the believer desiring more. I want to tell y'all, I am not a natural reader. I hate to read. Like when I was a kid, I had these things. Y'all remember these things called newspapers? Y'all remember those, right? Um, I would, I, the most reading I would ever do, other than the comics initially, was I get my grandfather's sports section and I read about how bad the Saints were doing, because they were bad back then, you know? Like, we complained because they went 9 and 8 now. Y'all remember those days, right? 9 and 8 would have been like, we'd have been partying, you know? Like, we'd have been partying, wow, yeah. And so I remember I would read little segments, but I never got into, like, reading books. I, like, Laura knows even to this day, I don't read fiction. Like, it's not something I enjoy doing. There's something about God's Word. It means even if you don't like to do it, if you've tasted that the Lord is good, you want more. You want more. And, and that's why you, you find yourself in the book of Leviticus, you know? 
I don't think any of us are like, hey, I want to go home and read Leviticus, you know, like. But when we read God's word, we learn more about him. When we go through some of these lists and genealogies and first and second chronicles, even the beginning of the gospels, like, and we see like, maybe we don't understand all those lists, but maybe we read commentaries and we see where they're, we, we feast more on what God is doing because God is up to something in his word and he's still up to something through you and me. And he's up to something because no longer are we idolaters, but in Christ, we are part of the priesthood. If you're in Jesus, congratulations, you're a priest. Like, I know you may not have heard that before, but you're a priest. I know we live in a city that says you have to be a holy man, and that holy man has to intercede on behalf of you and God. But if you're, uh, if, what was that show that we were watching recently? Daredevil. And he's like, uh, this Marvel show or whatever, like, and, and he's there confessing his stuff to a priest. That priest is just another man. Through Jesus, we have direct access to God. There's one mediator between God and man. His name is Christ Jesus. And we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one that was tested in every way that we are, yet without sin. That's what Jesus' blood did for you and me. That's when we take, take communion every week that we gather as a church, we remember that we now have direct access to God. And as priests, what did priests do in the Old Testament? Priests mediated between the people and God. Now we don't have to have a mediator because the, tur the curtain to the holies of holies has been torn in two and God's spirit now lives in us. We have direct access through the Holy Spirit to Jesus who intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. God now lives in you and me. If you haven't experienced God's presence, if you haven't feasted on God's presence, I pray this morning that you would ask Jesus. I, I know that you have forgiven my sins, but God, I want you I want you in my life. Peter said in, the, in, in Acts chapter 2, he said, you, once you've received salvation and you've been baptized, you will receive the Holy Spirit. He's promised for you. Holy Spirit's not a separate experience apart from salvation. The Holy Spirit is the purpose of salvation. God living in you and me, and I pray today, I don't care how you get the Holy Spirit, I pray you pray that God's presence would fill you, and God's presence would use you, and God's presence would guide you towards all truth. Priests not, didn't only mediate between God and man, but the reason we are called priests today, we are a priesthood, is because yes, we bring people to the mediator, we guide them toward to the mediator, Jesus, but we also offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, in the Old Testament, they offered sacrifices to please God. In the New Testament, we don't have to bring animals. We don't have to bring uh, things, but we offer sacrifices by giving God all of us. It means everything, where we live, where we work, where we eat and where we play, our time, our talent, our treasure, all of it. Our words are given for him. We all now have a role to play in the church. And the church is described as a spiritual house or a building here by Peter. He talks about Jesus being the cornerstone, holding it all up. Here's the good news, that when you are entered into the family of God, you're a stone 
that now becomes a part of the structure. The cornerstone is holding it all up, but we all hold up the structure with the roles that we play. Maybe you think you're useless in God's kingdom. You are not useless. In Jesus, you have a purpose. Every man and woman in here has a purpose. You are needed for the advancement of the kingdom. We all have a gift. We all have a role to play. And that role to play is found in offering spiritual sacrifices to God. Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 12, right? There are, that um, we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. That is our true worship. And we do this by not conforming our minds, but by disciplining our minds to the ways of God. I love Hebrews chapter 13, 15 through 16. Therefore, talk about Jesus, let's offer up a sacrifice of praise through him, through the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Our sacrifice of praise is acknowledging who he is to anybody and everyone who will hear. And it says, don't neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We love God, we proclaim who he is, and we do that in the way we treat other people. And this is where it all comes to head. David Walls says in the Holman Commentary, he says, in the midst of a culture that stumbles over the rock, Jesus Christ, disobeys the message of Christ, and then persecutes any who embrace Christ, believers can become easily discouraged from continuing in the journey with Christ. Peter laid out in ascending order some of the incredible riches that believers now have in Christ. And what are those riches? Look at verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for his possession. The next time you're battered down and you're beaten, maybe you're feeling guilty over your sin, remind yourself of this, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but would have everlasting life. He did all of this so that we would be his. We are a people possessed by him. Not possessed by demons and all these other things that want to possess this world. We are possessed by him. We are owned by him. Nothing of this world can own us if Jesus is our master. And we are owned by him to proclaim the praises of the one who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's where we'll end. The word here for proclaim is the same word that we get in the New Testament for angel. I don't know if y'all know this, angels, it doesn't mean that you're an angel, but it does mean you, that you will perform what angels do. What do angels do? One of their primary roles is to declare God's greatness and his holiness and his plan. That's our job as his creation. We were actually created in his image. Angels, we talked about that last week. Angels long to look in on the things that we have experienced. Like we are, God has created us in his image. If we look at God's image, God's image is he is continuously outpouring. He is the creator. Since we've been created in his image, since he is constantly outpouring, we are called to constantly outpour to him. And we do that in the form of worship 
and worship that not only points to God, but worship that points other people to God. It means that we evangelize. It means that we tell people. It means that we lay down like Peter writes. Peter is the same man who with his brother Andrew, Jesus said, drop everything and I will make you a fisher of men. And what does it say? They dropped everything. They dropped their livelihoods. They dropped their nets and they followed him. This is what God is calling us to do because when it comes to following him, he wants all of us. He wants our words. He wants our actions. Anything less than everything is nothing. And he reminds them in these last two verses, 11 and 12, since we're strangers and exiles in this world, we are to conduct ourselves honorably. For them, it was among the Gentiles. Same thing for us. More than likely in here, most of us are Gentiles. We're supposed to conduct ourselves. Gentile means non-Jew. We are to, we are to conduct ourselves in, in an honorable way around other people without hindrance or hypocrisy so that our words will be, will, will be seen as true. People will be attracted to our ways of life. Why is this? Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you are the light of the world, a city situated on a hill that cannot be hidden. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your God, the Father who is in heaven. He's telling them so that all people will glorify on the day that the Lord visits. And there, we look at the book of Revelation, we know one day he is coming back. And I pray that not only would we be ready, but that we would have everyone that we love, everyone that we serve, ready to hear about his goodness. If you're here today, you have a role to play. You have been sanctified to become more like Jesus. You've been sanctified as a, through your holy conduct to become a holy people that invite more people to be holy just as our God is holy. And as we proclaim his good news, we see that there's no other rock that we can stand upon. The only rock that's worth standing upon, the only rock that won't crack or fall or fade is Jesus. We'll sing a song here in a moment, and it goes like this. In Christ alone, my hope is found. And then later on, it concludes. Only here in the power of Christ can I stand. I pray today if you can't say that here alone on the power of Christ can I stand. I pray that you would come and meet me or Elijah at the front, find someone else here in this room. We'd love to lead you to Jesus. Don't let today pass until you follow him. You lay everything down for him. And as, as little children, let us long for him. Let us not just taste, but let us feast on the goodness of who he is. That's what sanctification is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word this morning.